This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. No, that's not what I wanted. where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Cameron Cowan, this is the Cameron Journal News Hour, thank you all for stopping by, I am so happy that we finally are back to a place where I can do this on the regular, um, there was a long time where I couldn't, and that's my phone flashing as usual, which we always do, um, <clears throat> so much going on, that book weird there we go um so very much going on this week oh my goodness i have been taking a little break the last couple days i have had guests in town and so i have been busy with that and all this type of thing but i have been doing some writing there's a couple really great things on the cameron journal this week one that came out today is what happened to jp sears you might remember him from awakened with jp he kind of went viral especially on facebook for um kind of making fun of the crunchy granola organic crowd which living on the west coast is like yeah i can find 10 of those people today and uh and so as it turns out during the pandemic um he kind of took a hard right especially when it came to vaccines and so um uh, and so i kind of want i kind of did some research because i noticed that like his videos were taking a much more right-wing turn and i was really kind of bothered by that and i kind of unsubscribed and i kind of want to find out like how did that happen you know like were we being kind of trolled the whole time um and as it turns out kind of um and so that's interesting. I also did another one on called I Hate Johnny Harris and You Should Too, um, which is about a popular YouTuber named Johnny Harris who came from Vox initially and um, basically kind of dived into YouTube when his job at Vox was ended and now has a super popular channel. Um, and it does seem like these days, if you are a mid-30s white male with a beard, YouTube is like your thing. Um... So, uh, so that was, both of those are very interesting. Um, those always do well for traffic people, like when I write about various and sundry, uh, personalities and 
celebrities and kind of do the breakdown of what happened with them. It's as, I think it's as close to entertainment gossip as we get, but I think it's, it's especially Johnny Harris, because he kind of um, is a purveyor of misinformation to some greater or lesser degree. And, um, uh, and, and JP Sears, just because um, it was very interesting how he went kind of so anti-vax so fast and, as said, now he has found a larger um, audience with who he's talking to these days than um, he had before. So <clears throat> that's interesting. There's some other there's some other gaggle of videos this week. Um, the last of my literary posts on work I did in grad school is coming to a close, um, which is really cool. And I'm uh, very happy about that. That was a lot of content to post. It was a lot of work to write it. But um, if you want to kind of get into writing and craft analysis, um, those posts are are up there. Um, one of the things I'm starting to roll out right now, and we'll talk more about this in the future, is I'm starting to do some writing coaching. And I'm also starting to do um, some writing courses Called, called The Power of Story. And, um, and I'm, I'm really excited to, um, to be able to do that. And I've been, I've been working hard on that, um, and getting that together and in order and getting those up and running and launched and all this type of things. So it's, it's exciting times. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff happening. Um, it's, it's really it's really kind of good right now. We have a lot of great content closing out April on the Cameron Journal. We also have some great stuff um, coming along in May. I'm still working on um, our politicized pandemic, mostly because I keep finding stuff and tweets and things I want to run down and research and all this type of thing. Um, and I'm also trying to finish books right now, too, so it's hard to get into a deep dive in the pandemic when I'm kind of like, oh my goodness, I need to finish this book. So, But it's all going to get done. It all always gets done. It just doesn't necessarily happen on the time scale um, that I'm 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 going to be on. Um, if you're in the Seattle area and you are going to, what is the name of that event? It's something Wikipedia. Hold one moment. Uh, the depths of Wikipedia at Fremont Abbey. If you are in the Seattle area and you are going to the depths of Wikipedia at Fremont Abbey on Thursday, April twentieth, this Thursday, April twentieth, um, I will be there. Um, so if you're in the Seattle area and you're going to that and want to come hang out, I will be there. The event starts at nine thirty. Um. I am going to be wearing comfortable shoes because I am old and this is a mostly standing room show. Although if somebody gives up a chair, I will snatch it from them so fast. It's not even funny. Um, it's a late show. Doesn't start till 930. Um, but it should be interesting and I think it will be a lot of fun. So I, um, yeah, so that will, if you're in the Seattle area and you're going to that, I will be there. Um, otherwise there's lots of, lots of stuff going on. Today's, speaking of local news, today's interview was really great. Um, today on the, um, for the interview, we had Ron Upshaw, who's from the Ron and Don show here in Seattle on Cairo, and they run a very 
a big real estate firm. And we had a great conversation about real estate in Seattle and what that um, what that looks like and what that means and what the challenges for the city are and all the new building and construction and, you know, how hard it is to be an expensive city and, and all this type of thing. Um, so it was a really great conversation. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Ron was really great. And uh, that was that came out today. So be looking for that um, on the YouTube channel. Um, so that's that's really um, that's really cool. So that's um, I think that's all the stuff from the Cameron Journal as such and kind of what's going on this week. Um, we do have a couple more interviews um, coming out. So interviews come out every Monday, the same day as the as the news hour. And, uh, and so be on a lookout for those. We have lots of great authors coming through. Um, and I'm wor- the season three of the Cameron Journal podcast, which is when I do produced episodes, usually over the summer when I take a break from interviews. Um, I'm working on that. I'm actually, it's going to be a special series um, with my friend Brady McSlane from Belle Couturier. Her and I have done a podcast episode before talking about bridal and fashion and telling stories and all this type of thing. We're actually, it was well received. So we're actually doing a whole series on the history of fashion. So, um, that's one of the things that, uh, I'm going to be working on in the, in the near, in the nearby to get those, start getting those produced and get those up and up and going. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be great. Um, it's going to be, a a really, a really great season three season one and two are still, um, up. So make, if you haven't had a chance to check those out, those are a lot of fun. Um, season one and two are audio only. And I use a lot of, um, audio that probably would get a copyright strike on YouTube. So um, if you want to check out season one or two of the Cameron Journal podcast and you're finding this on Twitch or YouTube or Facebook Live or anything like that, um, head over to CameronJournal.com slash podcast. Pick your favorite podcasting service and uh, somewhere in there will be the seasons and select season one or two. There's there's stuff about the interstate in there. There's stuff about how the West was won, which was a podcast episode that I wrote after I did like a 45 minute lecture on acid about westward expansion. Um, and then I'm kind of like, hmm, this is good. I should write this down. And so then like a year and a half later, I did an episode on how the West was won. Um, so all sorts of great stuff, all sorts of fun stuff. Make sure you're checking out all of the things. So on that note, enough jawboning about the Cameron Journal. Let's get into the news. So um, the one of the stories that kind of broke last week that we didn't know a lot about, but we now know much more about, is the recent Pentagon classified documents leak about the war in Ukraine. An Air National Guardsman has been arrested um, in Virginia, I believe, um, to uh in in connection with that um it says here the pentagon has started culling distribution lists for sensitive national security information after a 21 year old air national guardsman with a junior job was charged in the biggest u.s intelligence leak in a decade spokeswoman sabrina singh said monday initial findings from the defense department's review of the leak are due in 45 days singh told reporters at the pentagon It will assess who has access to sensitive information across the world and seek to strike the balance between ensuring that the military and civilians have information needed to do their jobs, but only what they need to know. The FBI arrested Jack 
to Xero on Thursday in connection with the leak of highly classified documents including maps, intelligence updates, and assessment of Russia's war in Ukraine. The U.S. charged Xero with a massive disclosure of intelligence secrets, an embarrassment that prompted President Joe Biden to pledge the administration will clamp down on the spread of classified material and led investigators to probe whether foreign adversaries played any role in the leak and dissemination of the material. I said last week that I thought it was a state actor, possibly China. I was very surprised when it came out that it was domestic because I was just kind of like, mm, why? Like, I just didn't see what the motivation would be. Like, mm, why would somebody domestic do it? But it would really benefit China to undercut our efforts in Ukraine. So I can see that. Um, so I was surprised when it was like that. But I mean, I also considering how many people, you know, may have access to classified information and all this type of thing, you can kind of see how this stuff, how this stuff begins. So that, um, that's kind of where we are, where we are on, on that story. Um, it's definitely interesting considering all that's happened with Trump's classified document issues, Mike Pence's classified document issues, Joe Biden's classified document issues. We might as well just start releasing this stuff publicly because it appears that anybody, practically anybody can get a hold of it. Um, it's a quite, it's a quite difficult, uh, quite difficult thing. Um, one story I wanted to follow up with that we did talk about last week, but has had major fallout since then. Oh my goodness. So last week, uh, Emmanuel Macron, um, the president of France flew to China on a goodwill, you know, tour and, and wanted to cozy up with the Chinese and made some pretty shocking statements about Europe trying to not get drug into a war and a conflict with China that would not benefit the, the Europe and the European Union. And um, his comments have had some pretty major fallout. So here on Bloomberg, there's a great video, but I'll, I'll read you about it. Uh, Germany's foreign minister <laughs> is already busy with the cleanup operation from Macron's comments. So it says, um, at around the time that German foreign minister Elena Barabak was getting a discreet tour of the surveillance equipment in Beijing on Friday, the Chinese authorities were arresting two human rights activists who tried to set up meetings with Western officials. Such an overt display of state power left a bleak impression on the delegation from Berlin and may have prompted her public warnings about the way China has, growing, has used its growing muscle. The other trigger was probably Emmanuel Macron. As Barabak prepares to discuss Indo-Pacific tensions with her group of seven counterparts in Tokyo Sunday, her tour of East Asia is increasingly subsumed in the extended cleanup operation after French president's own visit to China earlier the month. Baerbach's warnings of the horror of a potential Chinese move against Taiwan were in stark contrast to Macron's courtship of Chinese President Xi Jinping. The French leader's argument that the European Union should avoid being dragged into a dispute with China by the U.S. sparked instant outrage in Washington and across most of the democratic world. But it also highlighted a fundamental problem. The EU can't work out what to do about China. China smells frag weakness and fragmentation in Europe, and it uses it in its favor, said Alicia Garcia Herrero, chief Asia-Pacific economist for Natixis, a senior fellow at the Brussels think tank Bruegel. As he pursues his goal for China to become the leading world power by 2049, Xi has been on a diplomatic charm offensive, hosting a string of senior European officials, including German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. The problem for the Europeans is that China over the years has become critical to their economies. Germany
German car makers being a key example. And Beijing has become more assertive on the world stage most conspicuously in its support for Vladimir Putin in Russia. Indeed, the region's addiction to Russian energy and its struggle to shake it off after the invasion of Ukraine is a geopolitical cautionary tale. France and Germany both argue against decoupling from China, and the bloc aims to mitigate its dependencies on Chinese imports, but the EU's two largest members differ on the detail as they try to work through an extremely complicated balancing act. It kind of goes on to deal with European and Chinese trade, but the um, <clears throat> uh, that kind of it ends interestingly. It says several Western diplomats who were sympathetic to his argument, that's Macron, um, said the clumsy and provocative way he'd communicated had made the problem worse. One suggested he's still irked by the U.S. defense alliance with Australia and the U.K. that led Canberra to scrapping a $58 billion contract for French-built submarines. Whatever the reasons, it's making the EU weaker, not stronger, especially when it comes to dealing with China. If you share a common market, you cannot have a different position on the biggest trading partner of the EU and Germany, Baerbach said in Tianjin. The cleanup operation continues. I definitely did not anticipate there. I mean, obviously, Washington was never going to be happy with Macron trying to decouple from the Chinese. Okay. However, his comments were acerbic. I am surprised at how much backlash there has been. And in typical EU political style, France does something crazy. And like France and Germany are like, Germany is like the responsible parent and France is like the fun parent. So like France comes along and is kind of like, let's, let's, you know, get away from the Americans and let's do business with China. And the Germans are kind of like, hang on, everybody, calm down. Don't choke on your beer. Responsibility is here. And, and we're going to take a different view. And, and now, especially with Britain out, it's really now down to France and Germany to set the tone. And I would pay good money to hear the latest phone calls between Schultz in Berlin and Macron in Paris about, you know, Schultz being like, what are you doing? What are you saying? Don't say things. Like, I can only imagine that it, it must be a little frosty right now, um, all, all things considered. And... Uh, I think the article's on point. Like, the, the EU doesn't quite know how to relate to China because the economic ties are so deep. And I think for, for the U.S., it's easier because we're reshoring, we're friendshoring, we're moving some manufacturing to elsewhere in Southeast Asia, we're bringing a lot of stuff back to Canada, Mexico, and domestically. The decoupling between the China and the United States is although the trade ties have been deep for 20 years, is a lot easier. The Europeans don't necessarily have that option because the, e the EU is much more dependent on exports than the United States is. The United States has a broad and deep domestic consumer market. It also has broad and deep domestic consumer markets throughout North America. So we can kind of learn to live without the Chinese. Europe, on the other hand, is heavily export dependent. And so China is a huge market for everything made in Europe, in some ways more so than even the United States and the rest of North America. So it's definitely a difficult thing. But I think Macron's idea of trying to make EU foreign policy less dependent on the decisions made in Washington and more dependent on the situations made in Paris and Berlin and to a lesser degree Rome um, is, is quite compelling. Let's put it this way. Macron wasn't wrong to say what he said, but he definitely didn't help anyone by having said it, I think is the, 
the big takeaway from all that. But I wanted to follow up on that because that um, that has uh, that was a story we covered last week, and it kind of had a lot happened with it, and a lot was said, and a lot was written on it on it as well. While we're kind of over in the international world, I found this very interesting article. Um, posted today on Bloomberg, so much of the world economy has been going in reverse. Hmm. So I was like, all right. It says here, over time, we expect the world to get richer. Yes, there are disruptions and setbacks, and we have seen several large ones in the last few years. But the expectation is to see growth and an increase in material wealth. And yet for years, many countries around the world have seen stagnation or outright reversal, particularly once you exclude East Asia. On this episode of Odd Lots, which is this podcast that we're doing, we speak with Henry Williams and David Oakes, the authors of a recent piece in the journal American Affairs of what they call the long, slow death of global development. They argue that traditional development models, particularly those built around manufacturing, have failed much of the world with little prospect of improvement anytime soon. I, there's reasons for that. Um, most particularly, in order to have... And this was proven in the developed world in the 19th and 20th centuries. If you're going to have a manufacturing-based economy, a country that makes things, you have to do one of two things. And Japan was able to do both of these things quite successfully. Initially, you ha you, your advantage with manufacturing is cheap labor. So you want to have cheap labor and big export markets. Now, Japan did this in the 60s and 70s. Um, they had relatively inexpensive labor, although not as cheap as China, relatively inexpensive labor, and they were able to take on high labor, low overhead cost items like cameras, televisions, electronics, all this type of thing. Um, in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't made in China, it was made in Japan. And... Then, through as time went on, they were then able to build a wide and deep consumer market of their own, consuming their own goods at home. So Japan became less dependent on exports, especially once those export markets kind of dried up in terms of growth, and was able to um, have more domestic consumption. Now, bear in mind, Japan's economy has never grown the same way between... 1960 and 1991 as it has between 1991 and the present day that's partly due to two things one was the collapse of the J of the japanese property market the second was the asian financial crisis um however once their exports got more expensive once their labor wasn't as cheap people moved on to china elsewhere in southeast asia vietnam cambodia laos malaysia indonesia became democratic with the end of the Suwarto regime in 1991 so that opened new markets in indonesia which also contributed to the asian financial crisis in a weird way that's a whole other story i could do a whole episode on the asian financial crisis um but um that all is kind of a, a part of that and so you're not going to have great growth in manufacturing without exports and then a domestic consumption market. If you're going to focus on a domestic consumption market, you have to, as Henry Ford found out, pay your workers enough in order to be able to um, uh, to buy the goods that you're making. That's going to raise your labor costs, though. And that is very difficult to get off the ground because where growth and wealth is built in is having a surplus of something. Most countries, the first surplus they have is an agricultural surplus. So when you're growing more food than you need to feed your people, you can then take that extra food and sell it 
to your neighbors or on the global markets or this type of thing. That then generates money, usually foreign currency, that you can then exchange back into your own currency, or you can, as China does, use that currency to do other trading. So, for example, like China has to import food and oil. So when they get paid in dollars for goods, they're able to use those dollars to buy food and oil. Um, and they also use the profits from that to buy U.S. treasuries and basically offload their dollars back onto the United States. So um, I'm not surprised that global growth has been anemic outside of Southeast Asia, because where else is the growth going to come from? Africa is still being deeply exploited by former colonial powers and has no real consumption market outside of a few places, mostly Ghana, Rwanda, Kenya, and South Africa. Um, North America is pretty much developed. Central America is ran by the cartels. South America can have deep domestic markets, but you've lost Venezuela due to their economic collapse from government policies. Um, you have currency, you have a, another, a fourth currency collapse in as many decades in Argentina and not much else going on. Brazil is still a second world nation at, at best. So where is the growth going to come from? You need really for to have the type of global growth that we've experienced since the fall of the Soviet Union. You're going to need larger consumption import-export markets in Africa or South America because you're not going to get them in Europe. You're not going to get them in North America unless you can get rid of the cartels in Central America or further elevate Mexico. And you, Southeast Asia is... I wouldn't say Southeast Asia is tapped out, but there's definitely not as much growth there as there once might have been. And their value proposition is inexpensive labor, which makes domestic consumption difficult, which means they're going to want to stay export economies. And those goods have to go somewhere in order to generate the type of wealth that we're used to. So I'm, I'm not surprised that this basing all of you know, wealth and development on export and manufacturing and trading with others and all this type of thing isn't necessarily going well in producing the growth that we would anticipate. Um, there's reasons for that, but there's also, I think, an opportunity within that to create some new and different solutions, especially as we kind of have retrenchment from the global economy post-pandemic. Um, it would, it's, I think there's going to be more reliance on domestic and nearby neighbors. That also, when it comes to commodities, presents a bit of difficulty in terms of who has access to oil, who has access to energy. I think one of the reasons why they're doing so much green energy work in Africa is because the infrastructure for oil and gas isn't there and is expensive to build, but you can put up a wind farm, a solar panel fairly inexpensively. And so there's a lot of great green projects happening um, in Africa for that reason. So I think there's some interesting opportunities for nations to kind of do their own thing and have a certain level of independence and interdependence rather than complete dependence on the global system. And that I think is interesting, interesting and, and compelling. So let's turn um, back to the domestic. Well, let's do one more international story before we go back to the domestic front. This, so I've been studying cybersecurity in preparation for my next book, What the Hell is Going On? Post-COVID edition. And um, when I saw, came across this article last week, um, about uh, Japan 
and this company, I thought it was rather interesting. It says here that Kojima Industries Corporation is a small company and little known outside of Japan, where it produces cup holders, USB sockets, and door pockets for car interiors. But its modest role in the automotive supply chain is a critical one. And when the company was hacked in February 2022, it brought Toyota Motor Corp's entire production line to a screeching stop. The world's top-selling car maker had to halt 14 factories at a cost of $375 million based on a rough calculation of its sales and output data. Even after the initial crisis was over, it took months for Kojima to get operations close to their old routines. The company is just one name in Japan's long list of recent cyber victims. Ransomware attacks alone soared 58% last year compared to a year earlier, according to the National Police Agency. And hacking incidents have exposed shortcomings ranging from slow incident response times to a lack of transparency. In a nation that exported chip components worth $42.3 billion last year, dominating the supply of some materials, supply chain issues can have global implications. Um, it says, meanwhile, attacks on vital services such as Japan's hospitals, which delayed surgeries and other treatments, have served as a reminder that money is not all that's at stake. Quote, the ransomware attacks were a wake-up call to the Japanese, Matsubara said, because now human lives are at risk. The Kojima attack on, in February 2022 is what's known as a supply chain hack. Hackers penetrated the systems of a third-party business partner and used them to access Kojima's file servers. By 9 p.m., they'd encrypted data on some servers and computer terminals. The breach was detected at about 11 p.m. The hackers had sent a ransom demand, but Kojima's engineers never responded to any kind of communication with the hackers. And it goes on about how the ransomware and cybersecurity situation in Japan is not necessarily what we would hope that it would be. And it's interesting because I've found in my explorations of cybersecurity, we had four leading experts on cybersecurity on the podcast last year, um, that the amount of what we can and cannot do is very difficult. And what's even worse is the cost of recovering the data and rebuilding databases and systems is oftentimes more expensive than just paying the hackers. Um, I watched one documentary where the city of Baltimore um, had a ransomware attack similar to the Colonial Pipeline hack, and the, they chose not to pay, and the cost to recover the city's data and get things back online was about double of what it would have been to pay the hackers to have the data unlocked. Um, which led people to say, you know, it's going to come to a point where just in dollars and cents, people are going to end, start, end up paying the hackers, despite the government begging companies and municipalities and organizations not to, not to do that. The moral of the story out of this whole thing is that if Japanese companies don't get better cybersecurity, the entire global economy can be affected. So, you know, one, one small Japanese auto parts maker getting hacked, um, can have wide-ranging issues and can cause, you know, a half billion dollars in, in losses to a major company that, you know, you start having multiple of those a year. Not only do you have the loss of sales, you have the lost productivity and then and the lost profits from that, which can lead to layoffs and all sorts of other problems. And then you have recovery costs or paying the hackers costs. And what if they don't unencrypt your data and just take the money and run? Um, all of these things, better policies, and I think better national defenses need to be created to really stop this from happening. I think there needs to be better procedures on if a company gets hacked or there's a ransomware attack, who to contact, what can be done, 
creating a strategy around this, all this type of thing, and also having better security protocols. But one thing I've always found interesting about this cybersecurity thing is no one is really, and I asked this one guy, I said, how do we create the missile defense of cybersecurity? How do we stop this from happening? And he did not have an answer for me. And I thought that was interesting. And I thought that was telling. Um, and a bit concerning. Certainly a bit concerning. So let's turn to the domestic front. Um, so the one story, this is really interesting. So um, California has gone from drought to flood in the past year. Um, the, uh, this has then caused a, a lake that didn't really used to exist, that was mostly farmland, called Tulare Lake, um, is now back. There's so much water that this dry lake, which was once the largest body of fresh water west of the Mississippi, um, is now, um is now now back and much of the valuable farmland that uh, in the Central Valley is being covered over by by this lake. It says here the lake's rebirth is from the New York Times. The lake's rebirth has become a slow motion disaster for farmers and residents in Kings County, home to 152,000 residents and a $2 billion agricultural industry that sends cotton, tomatoes, safflower, pistachios, milk and more around the planet. The wider and deeper Tulare Lake gets, the greater the risk that entire harvests will be lost, homes will be submerged, and businesses will go under. Across the region, the surprise barrage of atmospheric rivers that swept through California over the past three months already has saturated the ground, overflowed canals, and burst through levees. The fear now is that record walls of snow in the southern Sierra Nevada will liquefy in the intensifying spring heat into a downhill torrent that will inundate the Central Valley. And the resurrected Tulare Lake already more vast than all but one of California's reservoirs, could remain for two years or longer, causing billions of dollars in economic damage and displacing thousands of farm workers while transforming the area into the giant natural habitat it had been before it was conquered by farmers. The Big Melt, until meteorologists have begun to call it. This could be the mother of all floods, said Phil Hansen, 56, a fifth-generation farmer who's already lost more than a third of his 18,000 acres to a breached levee. This could be the biggest flood we've ever seen. Already, several communities have been active have been evacuated, and hundreds of homes and farm buildings have been destroyed or damaged. Sandbags are being helicoptered in. Dairy cattle have been hustled to higher ground by to the tens of thousands. The authorities said last month that a local poultry facility surrounded by water was weighing whether to move or slaughter a million chickens, and farmers are sparring over whose land should get flooded first, knowing that inundation likely will be a question of when, not if. In the lake's revival, scientists, historians, and growers see an epic rematch gathering between nature and humans. For now, nature seems determined to win in an era of climate change, with extended dry periods followed by storms that deliver more water than anyone knows what to do with. The runoff has no natural place to drain, and experts say there's no easy way to send this water to other areas of the state that could use it for irrigation or residential purposes, even as the state remains desperate for long-term drought solutions. Around the farm and prison town of Kukorin, Gray-blue waves now whoosh surreally to the horizon. Snowy white birds soar over dirt levees that so far, shielding some 22,000 residents and inmates, submerged fields lie bereft of the tomatoes and the Pima cotton that would ordinarily fill them, an agricultural Atlantis larger than Manhattan. The, I won't go on, but the pictures are stunning. Um, if you haven't checked out the Tulare Lake situation in California, it's quite fascinating to jump from severe drought with the we're not going to have water to um 
to having a flood and a revival of bodies of water that haven't existed in in decades um and no unfortunately no effective way to store it no way to get it to where it could be hung on to for drier times and and most of it will end up i have i imagine eventually draining somewhere into the ocean or just sitting in the middle of the central valley till it eventually all ends up evaporating someday a couple years from now all this sort of thing um it's uh the, 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 uh, I didn't have this up as a story, but it should be noted that the federal government is going to be reallocating water between southwestern states along the Colorado River. So that's Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and California. The big losers out of that will be California, Nevada, and Arizona. And it's going to be really kind of first in American history for the federal government to step into states and water issues in in the west so as the old saying goes whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over and that main maintains its its truth in other domestic news um before we get into clarence thomas and trump and all this type of thing um the showdown between governor ron DeSantis and the disney corporation continues apace it says here, the Florida governor said that he's looking for ways to reverse changes that Disney pushed through two months ago to weaken the municipal authority that governs its Florida theme parks and was handpicked by DeSantis. Quote, they thought they could create some type of development agreement that would essentially render everything that we did null and void and put them in control for perpetuity. Unquote. DeSantis said in a press conference on Monday in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Now that's not going to work. That's not going to fly. DeSantis foreshadowed more actions against Disney, including studies on what to do with the land owned by the district itself, which could mean creating a state park or another amusement park near Disney. Someone even said maybe you need another prison. Who knows? The possibilities are endless, he said. Disney declined to comment. The feud between DeSantis and Disney kicked off last year when the entertainment giant criticized a law the governor signed limiting elementary school teachings about gender identity. In retaliation, DeSantis seized control of the board that managed the day-to-day -day operations of Disney's theme parks in Florida and appointed his own people. Disney, though, was able to get the district's outgoing board to quietly approve restricting the powers of the new board members would have for decades, including their ability to review theme park expansions and billboard advertising. DeSantis said those limits will be undone through a new bill that will be brought forward next week. DeSantis the DeSantis-appointed board will also study accelerating the payment of about $1 billion in debt issued by the district. He said the district could possibly raise cash by selling the utility that provides its services to a private operator. So that drama continues apace. I feel like at some point... <laughs> corporate power versus political power who's going to win hmm let's think who runs this country oh wait that would be corporations who doesn't really run this country oh wait that would be politicians at some point this is gonna come back to bite ron DeSantis, and i think it's it, it, the the longer this drags on and the longer it becomes a story, and the longer we keep talking about it, if Ron DeSantis thinks he's going to run for president in 2024, this is going to start to become much more of a national topic. And I think it could sink his little idea of trying to run for president all to defend his don't say gay bill, which is depressing. 
at best. So, uh, in Trump legal news, um, we have Trump loses bid to delay civil assault trial amid media frenzy from New York criminal case. So, um, there's, he is in the middle of a, uh, civil assault trial against the author E. Jean Carroll, and this week it says a New York judge brushed off Donald Trump's concern that the media frenzy over his recent criminal indictment over business records will make it too difficult to find fair jurors for his separate civil sexual assault trial set to start next week. U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan on Monday denied Trump's request to delay by four weeks the trial of claims brought by New York author E. Jean Carroll, who alleges the former president raped her in a dressing room in the 1990s. The trial will start as planned on April 25th in Manhattan, the judge ruled. Trump had argued a cooling-off period was needed for the Carroll case after the former president was indicted by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg for allegedly falsifying business records to hide a hush money payment to a porn star to influence the 2016 election. But Kaplan did not buy it. The two cases are, quote, entirely unrelated, the judge said. Quote, the suggestion that the recent media coverage of the New York indictment coverage, significantly, though certainly not entirely, invited or provoked by Mr. Trump's own actions, would preclude selection of a fair and impartial jury on April 25th is pure speculation, Kaplan wrote. Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, declined to comment. Trump has denied assaulting Carol and claims her lawsuit, as well as Bragg's criminal case, are part of a broader witch hunt against him. The former president had argued that because sexual misconduct was at the heart of both cases, potential jurors in the Carroll trial might be affected by the coverage of Bragg's indictment. But Kaplan ruled that the alleged rape was at the center of one case, while the alleged falsification of business records was at the heart of the other. To be sure, at a certain level of generality, both cases do indeed have something to do with sex, Kaplan said. But the something that each has to do is dramatically different. And then they're moving forward with Wadire and picking out a a, a jury. Um, it <laughs> you can't the amount of just legal stuff going on with Trump is is weird. Um, it, it, the the trial in the E. Jean Carroll case will be interesting. I would like to learn more about how that came about. Um, how they ended up in a dressing room, how he ended up assaulting her, all this type of thing. I would like to, I, I, I have a morbid curiosity. I would like to see exactly how this happened. Because it seems like Trump was just going around doing whatever to whoever to however with a complete disregard for anything else. It's real weird. The whole thing is real weird. And how many, and this doesn't even count, we're not even talking about Georgia and trying to rig a presidential election. This is just New York issues. That's that's it. It's it's nuts and ongoing, but again, April 25th, next week, we'll find out. The final story I want to talk about tonight is the Clarence Thomas situation. So, I I have the original ProPublica article here from last week. And it says billionaire Harlan Crow bought property from Clarence Thomas. The justice did not disclose the deal. It says here, in 2014, one of Texas billionaire Harlan Crow's companies purchased a string of properties on a quiet residential street in Savannah, Georgia. It wasn't a marquee acquisition for the real estate magnet, just an old single-story home and two vacant lots down the road. What made it noteworthy 
was the people on the other side of the deal, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his relatives. The transaction marks the first known instance of money flowing from the Republican mega-donor to the Supreme Court Justice. The Crow Company bought the properties for $133,000 in change from three co-owners, Thomas, his mother, and the family of Thomas's late brother, according to a state tax document and a deed dated August the 15th, 2014, filed at the Chatham County Courthouse. The purchase put Crow in an unusual position. He now owned the house where the justice's elderly mother was living. Soon after the sale was completed, contractors began to work on tens of thousands of dollars of improvements on the two-bedroom, one-bath home, which looks out onto a patch of orange trees. The renovations included a carport, a repaired roof, and a new fence and gates according to city permit records and blueprints. A federal disclosure law passed after Watergate requiring justices and other officials to disclose the details of any real estate sales over $1,000. Thomas never disclosed his sale of the Savannah properties, and it appears to be a violation, for ethics law experts told ProPublica. The, the disclosure form Thomas filed for that year also had a space to report the identity of the buyer in any private transaction, such as a real estate deal. That space is blank. He needed to report his interest in the sale, said Virginia Cantor, a former government ethics lawyer, now at the watch dog group crew. Given the role Crow has played in subsidizing the lifestyle of Thomas and his wife, you have to wonder if this was an effort to put cash in their pockets. Thomas did not respond to detailed questions on the story. Um, supposedly, according to Crow, he wanted to buy Thomas's mother's house to build a museum at some point celebrating the Supreme Court justice after he passed on. Um, and it, uh, and this is the, the reason this is significant is because this comes at the tail end of Harlan Crow also um, giving Justice Thomas um, vacations and at fancy resorts and expensive meals and all this type of thing. And it appears that there's just a, a, a too close financial relationship between the justice and this Republican mega donor. And when you have those types of relationships, one starts to wonder, what does that mean for Supreme Court decisions? What type of influence is there? This is why ethic laws, ethics laws are so important. Here's the awkward part, though. There's not necessarily a lot of ethics laws that s apply specifically to the Supreme Court. There's not necessarily always clear processes for Supreme Court justices on this stuff. And Thomas probably genuinely thought he could get away with this, even though anything over $1,000 was supposed to be reported and all this type of thing. Um, the He did report today that he would be updating his financial disclosure forms, but that doesn't mitigate the fact that it all happened and you now have this relationship between a Supreme Court justice and a Republican mega donor. And initially it was like, well, he didn't have any business before the court, so why does it matter? And that's true, but it looks bad. Perception is reality, and this just doesn't look good. It look it it makes it makes one look compromised. And if we're going to depend on something as important as an independent judiciary and all this type of thing, then you have the people involved in those offices have to be above reproach. And taking vacations and meals and whatnot from a Republican mega donor who may be trying to work an influence campaign to get certain cases decided a certain way or all this type of thing. It just looks bad. Not saying that's what happened, not saying that's the situation, but it it looks 
problematic. And therein, therein lie, lies the problem. Obviously, there's been some vitriol about this. Some Democrats are saying, oh, he should resign. Others are saying he should be impeached and removed. Um, Republicans are obviously circling the wagons. This story is not going to be ending anytime soon. So we'll keep following it and we'll keep covering it as time as time goes on. So it's 10 minutes to the hour, which is usually about when we end. So thank you all so much for watching. Um, this is the Cameron Journal News Hour. And uh, thank you guys so much for watching. If you want to catch up with me on social media, it's at Cameron Cowan on Twitter, Cameron O'Cowan on Facebook, uh, and Cameron Cowan on Instagram. So um, if you want me to talk about a certain news story, feel free to send it in. Um, otherwise, head over to CameronJournal.com for the latest, uh, the latest stuff across all the all the categories and new stuff. So um, thank you for watching. Please share with your friends. I appreciate it. And I will see you next week. Have a good night. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <coughs> Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.